Well, this is a season of pomp and circumstance. And as I think about how we're going to have families here, particularly next weekend, we have Lauren's family here today. I don't... There you are. Welcome. Um, and we think of Lauren's recital, and we also had Anna's recital this last week. Uh, pomp and circumstance is that time when uh, we celebrate past achievements in a very formal way. We, we look forward to the future. And uh, pomp and circumstance can also be a good description of what church is. Church is pomp and circumstance. But it's a very, very carefully orchestrated pomp and circumstance. Um, uh, a man that I like to read who wrote a book called Attack Upon Christendom says that the main difference between the church and the theater is that the theater is honest and, and admits that it's all a charade. But he said you'll never get the preachers to admit that. Now, why would somebody make such a cynical statement? Well, because it is true that across the ages, much of what has passed for religion has been false. After all, it was the Pharisees and Sadducees who killed Jesus. And at this point, our brain should go ding-dong. The religious leaders killed Jesus. He was God's son. Therefore, it must have been theater. Now, what kind of a theater was well, it was the kind of theater where Jesus looked at those religious leaders who every week had pomp and circumstance, and he said to them, no, your father is not Abraham, your father is Satan. So imagine Jesus coming here to me right now, looking at me, and I say, I'm a Christian, I'm a preacher, I'm a reverend, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd, I'm a prophet. And Jesus says, no, you are the one that Scripture speaks of when it says that even the devil sometimes appears as an angel of light. You're the one that's a sounding brass and clanging cymbals. You, you know, you, you have a prophetic word, but you don't have love. In other words, it should be clear to us that um, because we go through the ritual of Sunday morning, because it's religious, because it's Christian and not Mormon, because it's Reformed and not Arminian, because... Um, it's a man and not a woman because we fence the table. All this stuff does not necessarily indicate what our hearts are. Right? You know how many times those of you who are married have come to church and you've had a nasty fight on the way and you've sat preparing for worship and you've thought, I will not apologize to her. And the Holy Spirit's prompting your heart to say, I'm sorry, honey, I was not loving to you. And you just won't do it. And so you go into worship. What is it? It's pomp and circumstance. You can't come to God having refused to love your wife, having sinned against her, having it on your conscience, and have your worship acceptable to God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you can't worship God as a sinner. We're all sinners. And we're all sinned just a second ago. Contrary to what... Uh, Chris Connell says, <laughs> little inside joke, uh, he did sin just a second ago. I don't know how, but we sin all the time. And so this doesn't mean that until you're perfect, you can't worship God. But it does mean that when you have a sin, you're nurturing, you're treating tenderly. Like, for instance, your, your lack of love to your wife, okay? You come, the Holy Spirit says, repent. You say, 
No, I won't. All right? What you do there is pomp and circumstance. Okay? Now, let me ask you a question. What do we do as a church to aid and to abet pomp and circumstance? In other words, what do we do to aid and abet the concept that this is something that you go through and it's sort of this ritual thing and and then you've done your religion for the week and it's over and you can go back to being a hellion or just a normal American woman? What do we do to aid and abet that? Well, there are many ways that you aid and abet it. Many, many, many ways. One thing is you have an order of worship. And so everything's set out. You do the same thing every week, and that helps us not have to be sincere because we just do what we've done every single week. You start with a call to worship, then you go into singing, and then you go into a prayer of confession, you go into an assurance of pardon, you read the Scripture. And so everything is very orderly. Another thing that helps us to avoid the question of sincerity and, and authenticity, which is a word I despise, but it has a use. Another way we avoid it is we have a preacher who is not a preacher, but a pulpiteer. I was reading once where the clerical collar comes from. You know, that tight thing that's white and black around, a little band, you know? And what it is, is it's a fashion from like a couple hundred years ago. But the preachers were less inclined to stop the fashion when everybody else stopped it. And so it became identified with the preachers. It's just an old fashion that's been frozen. And, you know, so much of what we do as churches is cultural, but we'll never admit that. You know, hell will freeze over before we admit what is cultural in our worship. Because why? Well, because anything that requires us to examine what we do in religion is very threatening to us. We hold it precious. And you know what we hold more precious than anything else is music. Every man is absolutely convinced that his musical taste is what? Holy. Yeah, holy. <laughs> and you're not laughing, and you're proving my point. I mean, you really are. Um, and so I'm thinking about our congregation as I'm preparing to preach, and I'm thinking about how we differ from what's going on here. And so open your Bibles, let's read the account, and, and ask yourself, is this pomp and circumstance that we're reading? Is this the normal worship week after week of the people of God with their clerical callers and their order of worship and, you know, everything is exactly the way it's been for 300 years? Is that what, is that what we see going on here? Ezra 3, uh, starting with verse 1. Now, when the seven month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So notice the seventh month, they put the altar together and they begin their worship. All right? And then it says what? So they set up the altar and its foundations, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. Very interesting. They were terrified. You know, normally in 
religious worship services, we don't have something called the call to terror. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's ludicrous, you know. So, you know, this is probably like real what's going on here. They're terrified. Notice what they do because they're terrified. What do they do? They sacrifice offerings to God because of their terror. What a beautiful thing. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Burnt offerings to the Lord. They celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinances each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. You know how... Uh, if you drive through uh, the Winslow Road, Tap Road, South Walnut intersection, you always smell Burger King. Okay? This is the smell that permeated everything as this burnt offering was being done. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hanadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households the old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. Now, what is this? Is this pomp and circumstance? Well, if pomp and circumstance is something that you do year after year to observe the passing of the old, the coming in and of the new, and it, and it tends to be uh, very predictable. This is the very opposite of that. It's obvious that what is coming out of these people is all authentic, all sincere, and all genuine, right? I mean, who's going to make up they cried loudly as a part of the worship of God? You know? Let alone making up that the loud crying and the loud cheering or the loud applause or the loud shouting were mingled together so that you couldn't tell what one person was doing in another. I mean, that, it's completely authentic. Because you've got the old men sad and the young men happy, and you can't tell who is who unless you look at their age. 
You know, I can't imagine anybody has ever put together an order of worship trying to get the old men to cry and the young men to laugh and cheer. This is ridiculous. This was authentic. The altar is set up and worship begins in the seventh month, but the work of restoring the temple's foundation, if you look at the text, is put off until the second month of, of the next year. There's quite a bit of time between the beginning of the offerings and this worship, which is on the occasion of what? The completion of the temple? No, by all rights, I mean, you can argue one way or the other whether the, the, the poured concrete floor, whether the... the the footings are actually the foundation over there at our new church. But probably this Tuesday is the occasion when everybody got together and they had a blowout party. And it was very, very what? Loud. The crying, it says, was loud. And the joy was loud. They're going to pour the floor this Monday or Tuesday, Lord willing. Now, I just wonder... Why won't we be there cheering? Well, it would be gauche. It would be rude. It would be, you know, ill-considered. It certainly would not be... I have a Presbyterian book in my library, and the title of it is Decently and in Order. (laughs) It wouldn't be decent and in order to go over there and have the old men cry and the young men cheer, would it? If you did it, you'd want to go inside so the neighbors wouldn't hear Remember when Phil Henry was here and he went down to People's Park and he preached. And you know what? Pretty soon the cops came and told him to leave and shut up. Now, why would they do that? You know what goes on at People's Park, for heaven's sakes. So why can't a man preach the Word of God? Verse 8, in the second year of their coming, the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtah, began the work. Verse 8, it was after the harvest had been gathered in and the dry season had begun a good time to do construction since the field work was finished. It was the same month Solomon had begun to build the temple, the second month. And as the foundation was laid, the celebration at the party began. Verse 10, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, that was symbols, to praise the Lord. And then what does it say? According to what? According to the directions of King David of Israel. Now, there are many reasons why King David is scandalous to us. There's a woman who's a part of this church. I was shocked one day to have her express in no uncertain terms, uh, I would say, aggressive hostility to King David. And I was shocked. And then I thought, that makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. You imagine what most women think of King David? He's probably not real popular with women, right? Come on, be honest. A man that commits adultery and then murders the husband of the man that he cuckolded? It's probably not real popular with women. And then God restores him, and that's probably what really scandalizes women. A man like that should never be restored. You know? And by God, I'm never going to restore my husband. (laughs) 
But you know, David was scandalous for other reasons also. David was also scandalous to his wife, Michael, for being authentic and genuine and sincere in his worship. Do you remember that? Look in your Bibles for the text. It's in a couple of different places. But let's look first at 1 Chronicles 15. Beginning with verse 15. 1 Chronicles 15, 15. You remember the account that David and the Israelites began to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And the first time they didn't do it the way God told them. And the man reached out to steady the ark and he was struck dead. So then they get it right. They do it according to Moses' command. And we pick up with verse 15. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. You know, a little parenthetical note there. There's a lot in that parenthetical note. And then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, soft-sounding cymbals, right? Now, it says loud-sounding cymbals to raise what? Sounds of what? To raise what? I mean, come on. Joy. Yeah, that's right, sweetie. I mean, who has ever sung happy birthday like that? You know? All right, I'm moving. So what does it say? So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and from his relatives, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and from the sons of Merari, their relatives, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them, their relatives of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jaziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Unai, Eliab, Beniah, Maseah, Mattathiah, Eliphelahu, Mikneath, Obed-Edom, and Jael, the gatekeepers. So the singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, were appointed to sound aloud, symbols of bronze. And Zechariah, Aziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Messiah, and Beniah with harps tuned to Alamoth. And Mattathiah, and Eliphelah, and Mikneah, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azaziah, to lead with lyres, turn, tuned to the Sheminith, Okay, Shenaniah, chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instruction in singing because he was skillful. Berechiah and Elkanah were gatekeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Joshaphat, Nethanel, Amasai, Zechariah, Beniah, and Eleazar the priest blew the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah also were gatekeepers for the ark. So it was David with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands who went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with Now, come on. That's right. That's right. I approve of you all the time. All the time. Verse 26, Because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, They did what? Because God was helping them, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Now, people, that's a lot of money. That's like Bill Gates burning through a billion. It's a lot of money. Now, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers 
and Chenaniah, the leader of the singing with the singers. David also wore an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with what? Shouting. And with sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud-sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres, it happened when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, this is his wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. So why did Mary Lee and I name our middle daughter Michael? Well, this isn't the only story of Michael, but let's learn from this one. The parallel text in 2 Samuel, I want to read just a few verses. You don't need to turn. It says, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, three, four, five, six, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Come on, people. Is this extravagant? Is this pomp and circumstance? You know, if you stop to sacrifice an ox and a fatling when you paraded across the stadium to get your diploma, you wouldn't get in. It's unbelievably extravagant. There's nothing about this that isn't authentic. These people are gaga with joy. You know, you can imagine me taking my Honda, you know, every six steps. I bring in another group of young men and boys with sledgehammers. And they bash it to smithereens. Another six steps and it's your Honda. Bam! You know? <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. You know, this wasn't done because it, need, it was time for it to be serviced, you know. You know, nobody was opening the hood because it needed an oil change. These animals were dead. They were dedicated to the glory of God. They died. If any man would take up, would follow me, let him take up his cross. And it says, verse 14, every six paces. And it says, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. How do you play a trumpet softly? It's hard. Probably if you play, try to play a trumpet softly, and it's a fanfare, you're going to sound horrible. I had a church service once where this woman who was getting her doctorate in performance here and played the trumpet was asked to do a fanfare with the choir. And it was awful. I'll never forget it. She didn't just, like, sort of miss a note. She missed every note. And she missed it gloriously. <laughs> it was, it was mind-boggling. That's what happens when a trumpeter is not playing to the glory of God. Rain them in. They miss every note. It sounds awful. You can't rain a trumpet in. It's trumpets, trumpets, trumpets. Sure, you can put a mute on it. You think they had mutes? No. The sound of the horn with trumpets, with loud-sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. 
okay, was shouting in the sound of trumpet. And then it happened, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David, what? Leaping and dancing before the Lord. And what? And what? Come on. She despised him in her heart. You remember that moment when Al Gore kissed his wife? You remember that? He's up what? At the platform of the Democratic National Convention, right? And everybody's accusing him of being something less than an alpha male. Remember that? So he brings in a feminist to tell him how to dress. And she has him, like, put on darker colors or something. You remember that? Yeah, and he grows... Now, I guess he didn't grow a beard then. But, you know, he's trying to, like, get in touch with the leader of the pack. Remember that? You know? And they also thought he was a bit of a cold fish. I don't know why they thought that, really. And so he's on the platform of the Democratic National Convention. I didn't see it. I only read about it. But apparently he just, like, gave his wife this big gushy kiss. Right? Yeah. Did any of you see it? Somebody must have seen it. Glenn, what was it like? In the bedroom, right? Yeah. Have you ever kissed your wife like that in public? Do you want to do it now? You don't want to do it now? What union are you a member of? What union is it? UAW. UAW men don't do that to their wives in public, do they? No, they don't. And I read an article a little bit later, and the article was angry at Joe Sobern. I mean, not, you know, I shouldn't have said that, but that's who it was that wrote the article. And Joe Sobern was angry at Al Gore. Eh, maybe not angry, but he definitely criticized him. You know what he said? He said, with that kind of public demonstrations of affection, we're going to turn everyone into hypocrites. That's very sophisticated, isn't it? Undoubtedly, that's what Michael said when she had a day to come up with an excuse. You have this kind of demonstration publicly, this kind of noise, this kind of disrobing. You know, because he was stripped down for his worship. All right. You have that kind of thing, and pretty soon everybody's going to be a hypocrite because everybody's going to think that they have to one-up everybody else. Doesn't that sound good? You know? Doesn't that sound good? All of an Englishman's preferences are a matter of principle. <laughs> you know? And so we can then justify the fact that our hearts are never caught up in worship. And you never hear in our church the noise of the old men weeping and the noise of the young men dancing and shouting such that you can't tell who is who. We never have it. You know, we never have it. I've been holding off preaching this sermon for weeks. For a variety of reasons. One week, one reason. The next week, another reason. It's all been my desire to be pastoral. And to not hit you over the head until you're ready to be hit over the head. And I almost came to the point where I wasn't going to preach it at all. But what kept coming through my mind is what? We have people here who are suffering. I mean really suffering. 
who are timid, who are scared, who are fearful, who have wounded themselves, who have wounded others. We are a weak and an oppressed people who are living by faith. We're poor. We don't have jobs. We're having to sell our homes. We've been publicly humiliated. We're approaching death. And I'm thinking, what do we need? And then this stupid, stupid praise chorus comes into my head all the time. I wish I could get rid of it. But it's like, you know, that little game where you hit it with the mallet. It pops. Bam, bam, it pops. And here's the stupid praise chorus. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Isn't that stupid? I mean, what kind of a tune is that? The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. <laughs> and I do that in my mind. I do the ah, 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 ah. And then I think about it and I think it is true. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And of course, it's also true that any time there is a public demonstration of affection, the world is filled with people who are infuriated at it because they have no joy of the Lord in their hearts. And they'll do everything they can to silence you. I can remember the former church I served in this community. My children were smaller. And I view it as one of the greatest privileges that a man is given to be given children by God. And to sit with those children in worship. And now I don't have that anymore. And when I used to sit in, in, in church with my children, some of you may remember this. I'd have Hannah and sometimes even Michael either in my lap or cuddled up next to me in service. And as Hannah would sit in my lap, I'd take my hand and I'd rub it up and down her back. And I'd worship God. And I was in heaven. And then I heard that some people behind me were angry. And of course, what were they? They were women that had been abused when they were growing up. And I had to think, all right, what am I going to do? And am I going to show deference to people whose lives are a tragedy because of the wickedness of their fathers or their stepfathers? And I decided I'm not going to do that. I am going to have my daughter sitting in my lap and I'm going to rub her back. And I'm not going to allow us to be one more generation where the normal is sacrificed on the altar of the abnormal. I'm going to love my children, and I'm going to make it public. And if you don't like it, that's tough. I want you to see what God meant to have. And I'm not trying to be proud. I'm simply supposed to do it, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know? And I'm going to love my wife. Okay, I won't kiss her in front of Glenn. You know, those UAW dudes are a crusty lot. But you know, if you notice, 
the longer he's here, the more he hugs people. There's hope even for the UAW. I don't think you've taken the... Yeah, hey, 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 that's enough. Women, women are supposed to be silent in church. <laughs> no, that's a joke. That's a joke. It's just a joke. <laughs> so Michael's looking out, and what does she do? She looks at David, and she despises him. Do you know how that text ends? I wonder if I have that verse in my manuscript. I don't. Somebody get it and read it out loud. You think it was David or God? I'm not sure. It may have been Michael. Oh, she was in control of her life, wasn't she? She was master of her destiny. No more uniting with that man that made a horse's patush of himself in front of all the young women of Israel. You see, I'm not entirely pomp and circumstantian. I'm just not safe. You know, that's the problem with old hippies. <laughs> Once you see freedom, it's hard to go back. You know? And I love Scripture because Scripture is hippie-ish. All these gnarly, weird, twisted things come out all over the place. I mean, okay, if you have to record what Michael thought, go ahead and do it. But don't mention her despising David because he, he'd stripped down. I mean, do we really have to have all the details? And certainly don't mention that she was barren. I mean, wherever is heard a discouraging word and the sky is not cloudy all day. Home, home in the evangelical church where every song ends with a glorious crescendo. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It's like brass and belly, you know, the, you know and, and then it ends with saying that she was barren. Brothers and sisters, you have a choice. Either the joy of the Lord can be your strength or your strength can be your self-determination, your autonomy, and your pride. Let me tell you something. If you get into your pride, you will become a crusty, crusty dude that no longer has the ability to be disciplined by anyone, who grows harder and colder the older he gets, and who then will stand before God saying, I chose my pride over your glory. The glory of God and the pride of man are mutually antithetical. And when worship becomes in any way about the pride of the pastor, the pride of the musicians, the pride of the reader, you are being violated and God is being desecrated. It is sacrilege. It's blasphemy. And you know very well that most churches you go into are all about the reputation of the people leading you. And if you don't know that, you're an idiot. God says what? He says, I will not share my glory with any man. And so, you know, week after week, we have this question, how shall we lead you? It's a book Schaefer never wrote. 
How then shall we lead you? And every single week, we discuss all the particulars of leading you in worship. You know, what I think in Presbyterian worship, I said this yesterday to some men, I think the best thing for Presbyterian worship would be for us to begin to do everything the Pentecostals have always done. And I think the best thing for Pentecostal worship would be for them to confess the Trinity. And then once that's out of the way, okay, then they should never have an altar call and never have loudness or anything. They should have to be the frozen chosen for a while. Now, I'm not really serious about this, but I almost am. I think every Presbyterian church should have an altar call every week. Okay? And the Nazarenes should never have it. You know, all these rituals... You remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders of His time. He said, you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your traditions. I've heard all the arguments about why we shouldn't dance in worship. All the arguments about why there shouldn't be bands. All the arguments... I've heard a man here who's a part of a tradition that has, um, well, I do. Well, okay, I'll just tell you. I've heard this from a Presbyterian who tells me that the reason you've got, you know, symbols and other instruments in the Old Testament is that our scholars, this was how he said it, our scholars tell us that likely those things were used to cover over the noise of the animals as they were sacrificed. This is a very intelligent man. So everything you saw going on in the text this morning was not because of their joy, but it was because there were so many animals being sacrificed that something had to like come up over the top of them so you couldn't hear you know, the squeals as they died. <laughs> come on, you guys, you should be laughing. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. It's completely absurd. And I'm out of time. And I remember in the Scripture lesson, it says they preach for a long time. <laughs> but, of course, it's pomp and circumstance. And so I have to be on my best behavior. Okay, the sermon I preached this morning, most of it I preached three years ago here. Did you know that? I did. Here it is. You want to look at it. You've heard it three years ago. And as we began worship this morning, I thought about it and I thought, you know something? This is another example of the power of the preaching of God's Word. This church is completely different. Completely. And it's music and it's worship and it's affect Sunday morning. There's still things I want to say. One of the things my heart yearns for is that we will have people who will need prayer in the middle and after services, and that people will be praying for them. One of the problems we have here is our schedule. It's awful. We have to be out, down to the minute. But you know something? I've seen the barn door. I'm a horse. I've seen the barn door, and I'm galloping. And the barn door is that building that's getting built right over there. And when we get in that building in a few months, we're not going to have that kind of constraint. We'll still have constraints. There are a lot of things I want to see us, but I want to end by asking you this question. How much is your heart ever caught up in worship? 
Is it ever to the point where you can't hear the old men or the young men? It's just one big smear of noise. And the one, they're crying because they remember what the temple was in its glory. And the young people, because they've never seen anything this glorious. And there's no distinction. They're, they're, they're unified. The old and young, unified. One crying, the other cheering. They're unified, right? How long has it been since you've been in a worship service where that's happened? Huh? Some of us, the answer is never. We've never seen it. My, my, my oldest daughter and her husband and our four grandchildren uh, go to an African-American church in Nashville. They're about to move up here, but there's one thing they don't want. And that is they don't want to give up the joy of their present church. So what do you think? Well, I'll tell you, let you in on a secret. The whole reason I preached this sermon this morning is because I don't want them to be disappointed. But that's a joke. <laughs> no, it is a joke. Because I would already decided I was going to preach the sermon before I heard that's how they felt. But, you know, it wouldn't be bad for us to make a determination that we're going to model ourselves on that African-American church and the Pentecostals here. It wouldn't hurt us. It would help us. It would help us. Ken Taylor's daughter saying, Amen. She grew up in college churches. She can do that. All of you can do. I mean, college church, let me tell you. Didn't Brandon, didn't you used to wear your collars like this? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us. Father, our spirits are willing, but our bodies are weak. We are in love with ourselves. We are in love with our culture, with our instruments, with our history and our traditions. And we are prepared to nullify the word of God for the sake of those traditions. Father, we pray that you will send men and women and boys and girls who are forgetful of themselves to lead us in worship. We thank you for the little children on Palm Sunday who were so much of a threat to the religious leaders. They tried to get Jesus to shut the little children up. Father, send us little children like Lexi who just loves the singing of worship to God and adds her noise. Father, send us old men who will cry out loud at the grief and joy, the combination of knowing what is past but seeing the next generation taking over the yoke of leadership. Give us unity, Father. Give us grace for one another. Give us musicians who are willing to make fools of themselves for the sake of the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.